Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Thursday the 25th of February. Hundreds of hospital patients died and many more suffered unnecessarily, according to an independent inquiry into Mid-Staffordshire NHS Trust. Stories of bad nursing care, which included leaving elderly patients in faeces stained sheets, not taking people to the toilet when they needed it. As far as we're concerned, we knew the hospital care was appalling because <laughs> our relatives had to die in those surroundings. Also today, lads mags such as Zoo and Nuts should go on the top shelf, according to an official report. We hear feminist writer Natasha Walters' view. A lot of teenagers and young people were talking to me about how they felt that sex was now seen much more as a kind of performance. And I think that's clearly tied in with the rise of pornography. India and Pakistan resumed talks over Kashmir, which had been suspended since the terrorist attack on Mumbai in 2008. The fact that they are now talking, even if there are great difficulties in working out exactly what they're going to talk about constructively, is enough in itself. And I don't think Washington's uh, influence in this should be underestimated. Our architecture critic Jonathan Glancy gives his view of plans for a new US embassy on the banks of the Thames. I think the message we're trying to send out is, is that we have a world-class bilateral relationship with the United Kingdom and we hope this is a world-class building that reflects on that. It won't look like the US embassies that have been built around the world the last few years, which are, really are like a sort of General Custer meets Darth Vader. First, our top story. Up to 1,200 more patients died at Mid-Staffordshire NHS Foundation Trust than at other hospitals, an independent inquiry has said. Patients were neglected and left in pain as the Trust focused on saving money and hitting government targets as they tried to attain foundation status. Julie Bailey is the founder of the patient group Cure the NHS. Well, the conditions at the hospital were absolutely appalling, just workhouse conditions. You know, our relatives went into that hospital. We put them in there thinking we could trust the hospital, but in fact we couldn't. You know, our relatives died without any dignity, without any respect. If, if the RSPCA had gone in there and seen dogs being treated in that way, it would have been closed long ago. The independent inquiry by Robert Francis QC was commissioned by the Health Secretary Andy Burnham after a damning investigation by the Healthcare Commission. Francis says the appalling picture painted by the Healthcare Commission report was not exaggerated. What I have said in my report is there needs to be a system which allows individuals to be brought to account fairly uh, where that's necessary. There also needs to be an improvement of the standards and support given to directors and people in senior management when they are first appointed. At Prime Minister's questions yesterday, Gordon Brown had this to say. What happened in this hospital was completely unacceptable. What happened was a management failure in this hospital. And when it comes to accident and emergency, I am shocked not only to read the stories, but to find that where there should have been four consultants, there was only one, and where there should have been 55 nurses, there was only 37. 
This is a failure in management that has got to be dealt with. I'm grateful to the Secretary of State for Health for bringing forward a series of recommendations, including a recommendation that where management fails, just as with doctors, we will be able to strike off the managers from a list of those who are not acceptable for health authority. We have no reason to believe that there is another trust in England with problems of the scale and magnitude that existed in Mr. Staffordshire. I want to re reassure people uh, on that, but also that we are constantly tracking the situation. The Guardian's health editor, Sarah Bosley, says it's a devastating report. It shows a catastrophic failure at the Mid-Staffordshire hospitals. There are two hospitals at the Trust, and it's clear that what they were doing was neglecting their patients on an almost systematic basis, this is what the report says, in their efforts to hit financial targets, get high star ratings, and most important of all to them, to become a foundation trust, which meant that they would get more money and more freedom from government control. So in this desperation just to, do, to hit targets, they were in fact ignoring the people that they were there to serve, the patients. Can you give us some idea of how bad things were for patients? Well, this came to light because the Healthcare Commission last year worked out that between 400 and 1,200 more patients died there over three years than you would have expected of a hospital of that size and with that sort of population that it had. So we're talking about patients who were dying unnecessarily. And what we heard from relatives during the inquiry was that uh, patients were left in awful conditions. Some of them were left in sheets that were soiled with urine and feces. Um, they were not uh, attended to in accident and emergency. They were parked elsewhere because target hitting meant that they shouldn't uh, be in accident and emergency for too long. Um, we've heard that there were not enough staff we heard that a lot of patients were falling and damaging themselves because there weren't staff who were keeping an eye on them. And we also heard that patients weren't being fed properly, those elderly patients who weren't able to help themselves. And some hospital staff did express concerns about this, but they were ignored. Exactly so. That's one of the tragedies, that there were hospital staff who dared to raise it and tried to do a little bit of whistleblowing. People are still afraid to speak out as loudly as they might. They're afraid of repercussions. Have steps been taken to ensure that this could not happen again? I think um, in Mid Staffordshire, yes, there have been steps taken. Obviously, um, reports like this uh, the Healthcare Commission report before this one have really concentrated minds and people have thought about what they should be doing. Uh, the question is whether other hospital trusts might in fact be um, not as bad as this but actually in danger of, of similarly getting their priorities wrong, focusing on targets, focusing on, on the figures such as the number of um, uh, the, the length of waiting times and things like that rather than actually looking at their patients and looking at their needs and trying to treat them as best they can. So we don't actually know whether this is happening elsewhere. And for that reason, there will continue to be some inquiries. The uh, Robert Francis QC, who actually undertook this report, is now looking at the foundation hospitals generally to see if other things need to be done. Sarah Bosley. And there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk society. Also on The Guardian's website... I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily feature section. In today's issue, Audrey Gillen finds out what it's like to live in Wootton Bassett, the Wiltshire town that hosts repatriation ceremonies for fallen UK servicemen and women. Jeremy Paxman talks rubbish, and fashion editor Jess Cartney-Morley gives her verdict on London Fashion Week. 
all this and more at guardian.co.uk forward slash G2. There should be age restrictions on buying lads magazines like Zoo and Nuts. They should go on the top shelf because of their impact on young boys. That's according to a report on the sexualisation of teenagers commissioned by the Home Office. It's by the clinical psychologist Linda Papadopoulos of London Metropolitan University. Natasha Walter has been investigating the sexualisation of children while researching her new book, Living Dolls, The Return of Sexism. I'm not sure about this suggestion that age restrictions should be placed on lads' magazines, not because I don't sympathise with um, the desire to control them and their influence, but it just seems to me that when we know that young teenagers are able to access explicit pornography so easily over the internet, it feels like a recommendation that it it would be hard for it to have the kind of impact, I think, that um, those who are proposing it would like to see it have. What effect do you think that magazines such as Zoo and Nuts and um, you know, a more general access to pornography and sexual imagery, what effect do you think that has on children? Um, I think it has very real effects on children. I think it has very real effects on the way that, um, that people, young people <laughs> and older people see women and women's value. I think one of the great problems that um, children and teenagers have now as they're growing up, that they're encouraged to believe that um, that women really will only be valued if they measure up to a certain ideal of sexual attractiveness. And I think that's very problematic. I think one thing that I discovered when I was doing interviews for my book is that a lot of teenagers and young people were talking to me about how they felt that sex was now seen much more as a kind of performance um, rather than the intimacy and communication and emotional experience um, that it was once seen as. And I think that's clearly tied in with the rise of pornography. What would you say to um, the editors of magazines such as these, which have said in the past that you know all they're doing is publishing the similar images to those that you might see in The Sun or, or The Star or The Daily Sport? They're just cheeky seaside postcards. Um, yeah, obviously they're not publishing explicit pornography, and let's not pretend that they are. But I think everybody who's contributing to this kind of culture, I think they should just stop and have a look at what they're doing and think about is this the sort of cut that they want to be producing? You know, when I spoke to some of the men that were involved in editing these magazines or running agencies for glamour modelling and so on, I was quite struck by the fact that some of them were quite realistic about the industry they were involved in. They were often quite negative about its effects on young women. They often said they wouldn't like their daughters to go into this kind of work. And I just think maybe it's time for people who are participating in that kind of culture just to step back, take a look at what they're doing and think to themselves, is this, you know, is this really the culture that I want to be producing? Can I feel proud of myself if this is my work? Natasha Walter, whose book, Living Dolls, The Return of Sexism, is published by Virago Press. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. The Foreign Secretaries of India and Pakistan are meeting today for the first time since the attacks on Mumbai in November 2008. The levels of violence in the disputed territory have increased over the last year. The Guardian's correspondent in Delhi, Jason Burke, has just returned from Kashmir. He says there's little optimism about the resumption of high-level diplomacy. The real point is that they're actually just talking. That's enough. Um, They haven't really talked since Mumbai. Um, 
even before Mumbai, the the peace process uh, between the two countries was was slowing down. It saw some momentum gathering in 2004, 5, 6, 7, uh, then began to slow down. The end of 2008 saw Mumbai and uh, pretty much the uh, peace process frozen. Um, the fact that they are now talking, even if there are great difficulties in working out exactly what they're going to talk about constructively is enough in itself and i don't think washington's uh, influence in this should be underestimated what's in it for washington why does uh, america want india and pakistan to resolve their differences over kashmir and the two elements one is that kashmir uh, is a flashpoint uh, pakistan and india are both nuclear powers they fought four uh, wars over uh, Kashmir in the, the last uh, 60 odd years um, it is a cause of grave instability and it's a cause of a uh, kind of hostility that slows the economic development of uh, both nations both of which are currently allies of the US but most importantly and this is where the current impetus comes from if you like the current pressure is that there's a link between Kashmir and what's going on in Afghanistan it's one of those links that geopolitics is full of particularly in this neighborhood which is very complicated Uh, But basically, uh, the Pakistanis believe that they need to keep a degree of control over what happens in Afghanistan, a Pakistani-friendly government in Afghanistan, because they fear invasion from uh, the east, from India. Um, One of the reasons they fear that invasion is this thorn in the side of the relations of both countries, uh, which is Kashmir. So the idea is that you solve Kashmir, uh, you improve the relationships between uh, India and Pakistan in so doing, you make the Pakistanis less frightened or worried about the Indians, which means they have more troops to commit to a fight against al-Qaeda, the Taliban, and much more political will. One of the reasons that the Pakistani security establishment has been supporting some elements of the uh, Taliban over recent years is because they want to use them as proxies in Afghanistan. If there's peace with India, that reason for using those proxies uh, goes away. That's the theory anyway. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. Plans for a new US embassy in Britain have been unveiled. A billion dollars to spend and a prime site in Wandsworth on the banks of the Thames. But the only two British members of the seven-strong panel who approved the plans fought to the death against their American counterparts to block the design. The building, by Kieran Timberlake, consists of a 12-storey cube clad in blast-proof glass and a plastic facade. But the American ambassador Louis Sussman told The Guardian's Robert Booth he's happy with it. It is a stunning building, meets all our requirements, and it's one that uh, we Americans will be proud of and we hope the city of London and England feels the same way. Um, You've moved out of uh, the centre of London, some people are saying, out to this uh, new area, Nine Elms, that's being regenerated. Are you worried that it'll seem like you're on the fringes of things here? We kind of think we're the leader of the new era, and uh, we expect to see more, hopefully, embassies there. But it's really not that much further. It's about 10, maybe 15 minutes from the present embassy. It's right uh, south of the uh, parliament, and there is a great amount of activity and development, Covent Gardens there. So um, we don't really accept that we're outside the mainstream. And in terms of um, the architectural ambition here, it's going to give energy back to the grid. It's a, quite a striking form. Um, why have you chosen to do that in London rather than the more prosaic designs that you've perhaps done in other parts of the world? 
Um, I think we chose what we thought was best for London without considering anything else. Uh, and the fact that it is so environmentally friendly uh, was an important element to us. Uh, there are, I think there were seven US judges on the panel and a couple of British judges in the form of uh, Lord Rogers and Palumbo. Um, my understanding is that they weren't 100% happy with, with, with the decision. Can you comment on that? Not really, but I will just suggest that the entire committee signed off on the project. And their minority report that they may have sent to no, They all signed off. Sure. Thank you. The Guardian's design critic, Jonathan Glancy, is also enthusiastic. The design for the U.S. Embassy in London, in a way, is what you might expect. In essence, it's a big box. It's a big defensive box, and it's set in a park that can be easily defended. And the whole idea is that it's a kind of fortress, but a civilized fortress. Embassies are uh, diplomatic policy writ in stone. This one's writ in glass. That's a very particular sort of glass. It's, of course, it's bomb-proof. Um, and the building will have a certain elegance, but it's still basically a tough box. The lead architect, James Timberlake, uh, said that the, his design was a beacon of democracy. Do, do you think that this design does reflect um, American values? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, that's very difficult. What American values? Um, I mean, it's a beacon of democracy. I think, of course, the building will shine at night, and in that case, it'll be a big glowing box across the River Thames, so you won't be able to miss it. Um, is it a beacon of democracy? I uh, know, not really. I, mean, I think you could have built that in, in, you know, in a sense, you could have built it in Beijing or North Korea, a building like that. So I don't think it's a beacon of democracy. I think what it will be internally, though, is very civilized, and I think that's something. It's a shame again that the, you know, that none of us really, except you know, a few privileged journalists and a few privileged diplomats, will get to. See the inside, because I think that's where the, you know, there's going to be a big workforce there in this new building, and I think they will have very, very nice working conditions indeed. And in that sense, those will be open, democratic, warm, and friendly, I'm sure. But it's not what we see from the outside. Jonathan Glancy. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Andy Duckworth. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.